All right, Nehemiah chapter 3. You guys probably know by now what we've been doing. Where uh, Nehemiah came, comes later after the 70 year captivity where Daniel was one of the captives carried away in the beginning to Babylon. He spent 70 years in Babylon, and Daniel was reading in Jeremiah. He was studying the word, and God gave him um, a prophecy that he read in, in Jeremiah that said that, that the captivity of Israel in Babylon would last 70 years. And he began to encourage those after the Babylonian captivity. They began to go back to Israel in waves. And so the first wave that went back was a guy by the name of... This is like the 27th time I said this, but I get it. Um, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel went back, and he began to rebuild the temple itself. And then after Zerubbabel in the second wave um, was a guy by the name of Ezra. And Ezra went back, and he was a priest. His job was to reinstitute the services in the temple and, and the worship and the spiritual aspects, not just the physical buildings that Zerubbabel and Nehemiah later would do. And then later, um, in the last call, or the last Aliyah, back to Israel after the 70 years. Now this would be about where we are in Nehemiah here in chapter 3. This is about 150 years removed from the end of the 70-year um, captivity Nehemiah would have been born in, in Babylon. Many of the Jews stayed in Babylon. They made lives there. They had, and and um, Nehemiah's brother, if you remember from chapter 1, he had traveled back to Israel and came back to Babylon where he lived. And he was telling his brother of the condition of Jerusalem and the walls specifically. And it was torn down. It was a wasteland. And so God had, had spoke to um, Nehemiah and, and really pulled upon his heartstrings and he, he went to the king. He was a king's cupbearer. He had a he had a job at court in Babylon, um, and the, and the king allowed him. And his wife was there, and her heartstrings were pulled. And they let Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem. And this cupbearer, with no building experience, in 53 days, rallies the troops under the commission and the call of God. And that you know you've heard the saying, and it's cliche, but it's very true that God doesn't qualify the doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so, so the, the lesson is that if God is putting it on your heart to do a mission, to do a work for Him, to do a call for Him, never, never um, make it about your abilities or what you can or can't do. Because God will give you the ability if He's calling you. God will equip you and, and we step out in faith. Now, it, it is an exciting thing as a Christ follower to get to step out in faith for Christ. And because of this idea, you know, you, you hear this in sermons and pulpits, and you feel like sitting where you're sitting that, man, Lord, I want to step out in faith for you. I want to, I want to experience that. I want to take a step of faith in my life as a Christ follower. And, and we get this idea somewhere that, that what that means is that you just go and you do something that you're not sure about, or you do something radical for Jesus, or you make some plan and you go execute it. But I want to tell you that's not a step of faith. I think that, that it's important that we understand, first of all, the definition of faith given us to us in Hebrews is the evidence of things unseen. And so evidence is proof. Faith is not like, I hope I win the lottery. I hope that there, this thing happens. Or, you know, that's not the hope or the faith that the Bible talks about. And nowhere in the Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, will you find one example of anybody who stepped out in faith that didn't first know the will of God. And every time I say that, every once in a while, somebody will come up and say, what about Abraham? Now, Abraham didn't know where he was going, but it was an absolute, and Hebrews 11 even says about Abraham, that it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a step of faith as God called him to go. 
So he had the call of God. He had the will of God. It was a big step of faith because he didn't know where he was going. But again, stepping out in faith is not not knowing the will of God. So seek the Lord. Seek God's will. But what, but it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it like, oh, that kind of takes the thrill out of it. That takes the fun out of it because I know what the will of God is and, and then I just know it's all going to work out. Not really, right? Yeah, like, you can still know the will of God and it's still scary. And it's still difficult, right? And, and you still have the ability to receive reward from the Lord by being obedient and stepping out in faith. So again, Nehemiah is, is in that position where he knows the will of God, but he's not a builder. He, he's never been to Jerusalem. He doesn't know the people in, in Israel. And, and so yet he, he goes because God has called him and inspired him. And I'll tell you, some of the most thrilling times of being a Christ follower as a pastor is those opportunities that God's given me to step out in faith. And then he showed up in a super miraculous way. It becomes really... Um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Contagious? That's not quite the right word. That you just want more of it. Addictive almost. That um, you just desire to experience it. You know, when you put yourself in a position where your back's against the wall and the only way that you're getting out is if God shows up and does miracles. And that's a good place to be in. Not, not a fun place all the time, you know. But it's a good place to be in knowing that God has to show up and do miracles. So here we are. We have all ten gates listed. Um, Nehemiah chapter 3 begins at the sheep gate. It goes counterclockwise all the way around. We've been through them all. Um, the sheep gate was Jesus. The fish gate was evangelism. The old gate was truth. Um, the valley gate was trials. And as Christians, we live in, in the valley. There on the south or the back end, we run into the dung gate. And that's the, where all the trash went out. And it, it, it represents sin. And the fountain gate is the Holy Spirit. The water gate. We spent a couple of weeks on that one. It's the Word of God and the importance of us um, knowing Jesus according to the Scripture. So important. And then um, last week we got to the horse gate. And you remember what the horse gate represented last week? Spiritual warfare. And we identified three areas of Christ followers that were going to face spiritual warfare. And I think the key takeaway, one of the key takeaways is first recognizing that you're in a spiritual battle. Because sometimes you're fighting life, you're fighting flesh, you're fighting your spouse. And you don't realize that the weapon is actually a spiritual battle. You know, I shared a little bit of my testimony on Sunday morning about a spiritual battle that I was facing against drug addiction. And that when I got saved, I, I know the night I got saved radically alone in my room, that, that God had delivered me from the bondage that I was in. Unfortunately, I didn't immediately walk in that deliverance. I went through a period of about six months where I was growing in Christ, but I was still having um, relapses and, and sinning in some of the same sins that God had delivered me from. And then it was about maybe six months to a year. And one of the fascinating things was, I can, I can remember, like, one day waking up and, like, I haven't been high in, like, six months. And, like, I didn't, it wasn't like, oh, today is day number 122, four hours and seven minutes. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. Although alcohol wasn't my drug of choice, but, you know, it, it just was like, I just, and, and then later as I read certain scriptures, I, I could go back and I could say, that's exactly what, I didn't even know that's what was happening in my life. But the Bible says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And what was I doing during that season? I was just walking in the Spirit, and I was falling so in love with Jesus. And, you know, when you're new in Christ, you get this, like, 
wind-up that God gives you and He lets you go. And, and, and you long for that, right? In, in Revelation to the, to the seven churches, one of the issues that Jesus identifies for us in a report card is to go back and remember your first love. Do those things, Jesus says, for us to do those things that we did at the first. It's like dating, right? When, when Lydia and I were first dating, I did all kinds of things that I don't do anymore. And, you know, like, it, and, and this is just good marriage advice, right? If, if you want to improve your marriage, go back and do the things you did when you were courting. You know, and date and do all those things and the special things and the extra things. And, you know, and, and the Word of God says that for our lives as Christ followers to go back and return to our first love, to do those things. And so, um, just, I was just in love with Jesus, and I didn't want to do those things anymore. Again, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to make a case against some other form of recovery, but I'm telling you that for me, you know, it happened very naturally. And it just, I just started, God had called me, I started responding. And I wasn't perfect either. There was times where I was blowing it, and I was going back to L.A. and doing stupid things and ending up in the same places I was before. And yet, um, what, what I had to realize in, the, in this fight that was so game-changer for me was that I realized that this was a spiritual battle. That what I was facing was 100% a spiritual battle. You know, and I had a, a, a violent past as a, as a young person growing up in L.A. and, um, you know, knew how to solve problems a certain way. But um, now I understood that none of those things were, were effective. And none of the weapons that I had learned or knew would, would be useful in this fight. But I had to fight this fight in the Spirit. And I did. I literally, there was times, you know, I, I shared it again on Sunday, but I, I can't remember. And I don't share this very often. I don't know why these details come out. This is what, get saved in 98, 2008, 2018, 25 years? 25 years later, some of these details are very seldom to come out. But I, 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 would, I was praying, and I was shaking, and I was crying, and I was like, I was trying to fight, like, in the Spirit. And I was calling out to God, and something in my heart so wanted deliverance, and I didn't want to be on drugs anymore. And I was so, you know, stuck in that position, and, and really in my heart, I was begging God to deliver me and to set me free. And I can remember at times in those, in those seasons, of just, oh, you know, just shaking and... Um, all some other things that I still haven't shared yet. But, you know, because it's funny. I, just let me digress. This is on tape. Hopefully we could cut this part out. But, um, you know, e- even the way God worked in that season, He did some really unique things that He's never done since then. And I think because I didn't know the Word of God and I didn't have furniture and I didn't have things, God did certain things that were nuggets that I don't think are like, you know, there were experiential things where I felt the Holy Spirit, I knew the Holy Spirit, and, and he allowed me to have certain experiences in that only in that season of my life when I needed them the most. You know, and then as I grew in the Word, as I grew closer to Jesus, now those things, you know, they haven't happened since then. But some of the things that I'll tell you one of them. Um, I, I was I was praying and I was I was singing and whatever. I was alone and I was seeking the Holy Spirit, and I said the word Hallelujah. And when I got to the Lou part. It was it, my tongue started bouncing in my mouth, and 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 the sound that was coming out was like angelic. It was like when I got to the hallelujah part. It lasted for a long time, and it was, I could feel it coming. So whatever I was saying out of my mouth was coming from deep in my belly, and and it was the Holy Spirit was just doing something to get my attention, just just a nugget that I needed in that season. That's never happened since then. But the embarrassing thing was that after I had that experience. I can remember telling people that I feel like God has called me to be a singer. 
Because <laughs> I could sing one note of hallelujah like an angel, baby, for like one time in my life. And never again have I had that experience. I try it now, dude. Like, hallelujah. It just doesn't happen, you know? Like, But I, there's something hit me. The Holy Spirit just grabbed me in that moment. And He allowed me. And, and here's the thing that happens, right? And, and, and pray that, you know, if, if you guys could, all of you guys, if I took times and I went around this room, like, I believe all of you guys could share amazing things that the Holy Spirit did that nobody will ever take from you, right? There, there are certain things that God has allowed in your life to show you His love, to prove that He's real, and, and nobody will ever take it from you. And again, I can't like, you know, I do want to be careful, right? Because when people share experiences that are outside of um, Scripture, we gotta we got to take that with a red flag. But, but you have things. You know you have things that nobody will ever take from you. You know, nobody will ever take that experience from me. I know that was the Lord. Um, my call out of Acts chapter 16, I've shared that several times, how God called me to preach the gospel. Nobody will ever take that from me. So, Nehemiah was called. He was called, he was moved by God to go back to Jerusalem, having never been there. And what's so amazing is that he accomplished his goal in 53 days. He, he finished all these walls and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 15 days. So we come to the, the next gate where we are. Look at your Bibles in Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm beginning in verse number 29. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter because we're going to be all over the Bible today, but not back here in Nehemiah necessarily. In verse 29 it says, After them Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. And after him Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. So we have the east gate, Right? That's the first one we're going to study tonight. I'm going to read the next one, and then we'll get back to the east gate. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelmiah, the Hanan, the sixth son of Zelaf, that's how they used to say Ralph in those days, prepared another section after Meshulam, the son of Barakah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. And after him, Malachizah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nephinim of one of the merchants, in front of the Mikhod 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 gate, Mikhod Mikhod. You gotta like you're gonna get the Hebrew right. Um, that word um, translated. Do you have a, something else besides where they, they see? Sometimes you'll find this in your Bible where they just leave the Hebrew word even in English, and that's what it does in the New King James. What do you guys? Anybody reading something besides the New King James? Inspection, okay? Anybody else? ESV, what's it say in ESV, Dan? In verse 20, 31 there. Nick Club Gate. Anybody else had a King James? What does the King James say? Call you? Yeah. In front of the what gate? What does your say, Jackie? Yeah. Okay, so it does it is the same thing in the King James. So the English word means inspection gate, okay? If you got that right, it, it, the term is inspection gate. And so um, we're going to look at the east gate first, and then the inspection gate, and then in verse 32 it says, and between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate, what was the sheep gate? The sheep gate was Jesus. Do you remember? Look at our chart back to number one. The sheep gate was Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. So now we've come full circle, right? We passed the east gate. And they bring it right up to the beginning where they started the sheep gate in chapter 3 comes to an end. The what? 
muster. Is that what it says? Okay, so that word means inspection is the clearest English um, translation of what miskod means. So let's look at the east gate. In order to do that, I want to take you to a prophecy in Ezekiel in chapter 30, uh, 40, I'm sorry, 43. I want you to find Ezekiel 43, please. Beginning in verse number 1. And then we have another one about the return of Christ in um, um, Zechariah. We're going to go to in a minute, but I just gave a spoiler alert. The East Gate has to do with the second coming of Christ, and I'm going to show you why. So if you're taking notes through the series, the East Gate represents um, for us the, um, that's the picture of the East Gate. So if I need to just leave that up for a minute as I go through this, I'll get to what, when we talk about it in a minute. But this is the actual East Gate there in Jerusalem. That's the way it would look today. Um, and we'll talk about it. But um, Ezekiel prophesies for us regarding this gate um, and the second coming of Christ. Now, to set up the second coming of Christ, I feel like, and I could be totally wrong. You guys can help me if I am. But I feel like, I don't like that term, I feel. That's what the kids say nowadays. I just feel. I just feel like either you like it or you don't. What does that mean? Um, yeah, anyway, sorry. So that you guys have a pretty good grasp already, understanding we've been studying Daniel, we've been studying Revelation. I would hope by now that you guys have a pretty good grasp on the second coming of Christ, the two phases of it, what that means, that we've done a good job in this church of walking through these things. And I'll just by way of reminder, when we, when we say the term the second coming of Christ, um, literally that means Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes on a white horse at the Battle of Armageddon, that is the second coming of Christ, technically. There's two phases, but sometimes we use the term second coming of Christ, and some are referring to the rapture when they say that. I may be guilty of that at times. So it is splitting hairs because it is technically, we can use those terms, but again, technically, if we're getting it right, the second coming of Christ is when he returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and Revelation 19 in the Battle of Armageddon on a white horse. That's the second coming. So the, the phase, the first phase of Jesus' second coming is the rapture, which happens prior to the seven-year tribulation period. In the rapture, it says that Jesus comes to the clouds and we meet him in the air. He never comes to the earth in, in the rapture. So in, in, in 2 Thessalonians, um, it says that Jesus comes, we'll meet him, but together we meet him in the air, in the clouds. It says clouds twice, it says in the air. So he never technically comes to the earth. It says there's a trumpet, that the Lord himself will blow a trumpet. People will ask sometimes, you know, when, when that trumpet blows. So we're listening for a trumpet, right? We make the joke that we're not looking at Donald Trump, we're looking for the trump of God. As God's going to blow the trumpet, the rapture is going to happen when he blows that trumpet. And some were like, well, will everybody hear the trumpet when it blows? Or will just the Christians hear it? Will it be like a, like a dog whistle that only Christians can hear? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm assuming everybody will hear it. I don't know. It's, there, there's some interesting things that I'm not teaching tonight that we could kind of postulate and kind of uh, just have fun with. But, you know, the Bible does say that it's, that it's coming in the rapture. In the rapture, well, one, of the, one of the aspects of it, lots of aspects, one of the aspects of it is that he's going to come as a thief in the night. So in, in, in Tim LaHaye's famous books called the Left Behind series, 12 books about this whole saga of what happens during the rapture and after the rapture and at the time of the rapture, 
the way he painted the picture in the Left Behind series was one of the guys was an airline pilot, right? And so when the rapture happens, and he even said, like, your clothes would pile up on the floor. Yeah, and like, so if you're driving on the freeway and you're a Christian, you're driving in traffic and you get raptured, your car starts to create chaos. If you're a pilot and you're flying a commercial jet for United Airlines, and I have a friend who's a Christian who flies for United, and, and he's going up in the rapture. When he goes up, his plane is going to crash and there's all this chaos. Now, that's, that's possible. I don't know. Very, very possible. The rapture's going to happen. We're going to go up. Um, you know, they, make, they, they, they joke about, like, the pile of clothes on the floor, like, what else gets left? What if, you, what if you have cavities in your mouth that weren't a part of your original body? Do they fall out too? What if you got like a hearing aid or you had a knee replacement? Or, you know, what else is going to be laying? Your glasses? You have contacts? Are they going to be laying on the floor as well? Listen, I don't know the answer to those questions, but don't get caught up in that stuff. It's silly. Right? It's fun, but it's silly. And nothing doesn't matter. God's going to figure it out, right? So the rapture is going to happen, but it does say, one of the things it says is that thief in the night. So that's one idea that Tim LaHaye came up with, and kind of the idea that the rapture is going to create mass chaos. The other idea I've heard people say is that God is going to do it in such a way that there's, there's going to be some cover over the rapture that may take the world a week or two weeks to really, for the dust to settle, and everybody to figure out, and maybe it happens with the night changes and times and different things where it's, it's done as a thief in the night, and, and it takes the world a little bit, a couple days, a week, you know, to, to start to see and figure out and that, that all these people are gone. I don't know. I can do however we want to do it. You know, I, I kind of feel like, and I have the worst um, opinion about the way it's going to go down, but, and again, it's just a lame opinion. Don't, don't put any stock in this. You guys come up with your own. Read your words, you decide, and, and don't let mine sway you too much. But I kind of feel like that there's going to be some kind of smoke screen, whether it's going to be a nuclear bomb, um, whether it's going to be some kind of war, some kind of event, cataclysmic event, some kind of earthquake, volcano. Um, the easy one right now, when China and Russia were hanging out together before the Olympics, when Putin and the Russian, the Russian or the uh, Chinese president were. Um, hanging out and discussing war just before the Olympics was that they were also discussing the United States problem. And if China and Russia point a couple nukes in a couple places in the United States, again, I'm not saying we're getting nuked. <laughs> if we do, I just have one prayer request that the one hits me right here. You know, I don't want to be in the aftermath. I don't want to catch the... I just want to be done when it happens and but if there were something like that and there was some kind of chaos on the world, on the planet, that would have helped the United States, I don't know about everywhere else. But as that dust settles, that it could be done as a thief in the night because it would take a little bit for the world to figure out what happened to all these disappearance of all these people. So um, that the rapture happens. We'll be raptured. We won't see them. The bombs will be coming, but we'll be raptured. But, you know, one of the scenarios is that in the Ezekiel 38 war, no countries are going to come to Israel's side. And if these countries are attacking Israel, why is the United States not going to come to their aid? So something has to cripple the United States. Well, the easiest thing to cripple the United States is the rapture. Of all the countries in the world, the United States is going to feel the effects of the rapture more than any other country. I promise you in Saudi Arabia, they're, they're, that could be a thief in the night in Saudi Arabia because they're, they're, nothing's going to change in Saudi Arabia. Not much is going to change in Iran. And in places of the world where um, there are no Christians that are going to be raptured, or very few. 
that, that it, it very well easily could be a thief in the night. So, the east gate, again, is the second coming. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 43. Um, Ezekiel prophesies for us in the Old Testament. And so, um, the Lord gave it to the Jews who don't have the New Testament there. Don't, don't read the New Testament. They have it all contained in the Old. It says in verse 1, it says, afterwards, and this is after the Ezekiel um, prophecy, not necessarily chronologically in order, but it says, after he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east, are we talking about the east gate? Yes, in Jerusalem, it would have been there in this time. And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of a vision which I saw, like the vision I saw when it came to destroy the city, the vision were like the visions which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate, which faces toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So the prophecy is that when Messiah comes, he would come through the east gate into the temple. And so this picture is taken up a little bit higher. The Dome of the Rock looks like it's like bordered against the East Gate. It's not. It sits back a little bit. But from the angle of this picture, it just, I don't know, it makes the Dome of the Rock look really close. But this is there today. So this is, um, if you're looking at the East Gate, any idea where you're standing to look at the East Gate? The Mount of Olives. That's on the east side of the city. So just under the East Gate is the Kidron Valley, who runs runs north and south along the east side of the city. Above that is the um, Mount of Olives, the mountain range just above the Kidron Valley, where you're looking back. So Messiah was going to come through the east gate, uh, Ezekiel tells us. Do you guys see the headstones that are, and the stones that are down here underneath the east gate? Yay, nay. I don't know in the back if you guys can see that. See all these stones that are here? Right here? That is the Muslim cemetery. So, the story goes, true story, funny story, the Turks in the um, Ottoman Empire, which would have been in the 1500s, technically, specifically 1541, a famous Turk Ottoman, when they, when they captured the Holy Land, they captured Israel during the Ottoman um, Empire, the leader was called Solomon the Magnificent. And Solomon the Magnificent, when he took control of Jerusalem, he, he knew the prophecy from the Jewish scriptures of Ezekiel saying that Messiah would come through the East Gate. So Solomon the Magnificent had a magnificent idea. And this is true. This is why it's still to the day they left it like it was to this day. So Solomon the Great, he concreted in the entrance. It's the only entrance that has this double arch in the city walls. And, and he, he walled it up, concreted it in, and then he built a Jewish, um, sorry, a Muslim cemetery in front of the East Gate because they knew that the Messiah would be a priest, and no good Jewish priest would walk through a, a Muslim cemetery because he would defile himself. So the, the problem now is that when Jesus goes to return, it's going to go something like this. Guys, I said I was going to come through the East Gate, but I'm so sorry. Solomon the Great blocked it in with concrete, and he put a cemetery, and I can't walk through the cemetery. So we're going to have to go with Plan B. You think that's the way it'll go down? No, you know, Allah blesses Turban for uh, Solomon the Great, but the Magnificent. But his plan is not going to work. Jesus is going to come right through the East Gate like he said he would. And so, um, 
in uh, uh, another scripture I want you to be familiar with. Turn to the right a little bit. Before you get to the New Testament, you'll run into Zechariah. And in, in, towards the end of that book, you'll find chapter 14, the last chapter of Zechariah. Just go to Matthew and then make a left a couple pages. It's just right there in the inside of your Old Testament. So Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. Zechariah 14, beginning in verse number 3. Now it says here in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse number 3, it says, The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And I think I have a picture of the Mount of Olives for you guys from right... Um, there we go. So this is... Um, a picture looking at the Mount of Olives. So right here, this is part of what would be the Garden of Gethsemane that you're looking at here. And where would the East Gate be in this picture? Brian? I'm lost a little bit. The, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're looking at it at, from the, the Temple Mount. That's right. So if you're standing at the Dome of the Rock and you're looking towards the East, you're looking at the Mount of Olives. So now picture yourself standing at the East Gate, that last picture I just showed, Kidron Valley in the middle, there's another cemetery here. This is a Jewish cemetery. You see all these tour buses that are lined up right here? Okay. The reason for that is there's all those tour buses just above the cemetery. And the reason for that is because every time you go to Jerusalem, we end there and we go up on the Mount of Olives and there's a spot right here that's a great lookout back towards the old city and then we take a picture. So if you guys have been to Israel and you have a photo... It was taken right there. So now this is now this is standing in right behind where those buses are parked. Now we're now we're standing basically right where the buses were parked, and we're looking over this Jewish cemetery, back down the Kidron Valley, back up, and the East Gate is just here. You can kind of know if I can see it because I can see the little McDonald's arch in the East Gate. But that's the East Gate. The all the white stones there underneath the East Wall there are the. Now you can see the the. There. Back up one, by Let's just keep that one for a sec. Yeah. Now you can see the proximity of the Dome of the Rock. It doesn't feel like it's sitting right on the East Gate in that picture. Okay. And the Kidron Valley there in the, in the middle. And now we can see the next one. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. You got you up. I just thought of some. So, um, this down here is the southern wall, southern steps. This is where Neil Armstrong stood on the southern steps of the old city. You can kind of see the wall going this way around the old city. Okay, now we can go to the next one. Okay, now we're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane or gardens. We don't know exactly um, which garden Jesus would have prayed in in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's actually multiple gardens along the Mount of Olives right there in that proximity that we visit. And to know the exact one where Jesus was is kind of hard to know. Um, I kind of have an opinion there's four, I think I've told you guys this story, but there's four ancient olive trees um, at the base of the Mount of Olives, and they were dormant for like a thousand years, and they came back to life. They came back to life in 1948. And a crazy story. But one of the things that happened, too, on the Mount of Olives was um, during one of the empires, I don't remember which empire it was, but they were taxing the residents based on how many trees you had on your property. And so, because to avoid taxes, they were cutting all of the olive trees down on the Mount of Olives. 
So, so much of the original vegetation that was there, or trees that were there during the days of Jesus, were all cut down. So we don't even have them um, to know exactly where it was. But this would be an idea somewhere in the Garden of Gethsemane, near that area, somewhere along the Mount of Olives, looking back. So Jesus is going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and then, and then Zechariah says, look at verse 4, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now, you're looking at, you're looking from the east to the west. This is north. Jesus would have been crucified outside the north side of the city. This is the south. David's um, house, where, he, where David saw Bathsheba and all that. That's on the south side of the city. We saw that from the last picture. And so the, 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 the Mount of Olives, it says it's going to split this way. From the east to the west. And it says that the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, they're going to move to the north and the south with, with the new valley that Jesus is going to create right down the middle. So, um, I've shared this with you guys before too, but... Um, um, Herzl, our guide, he was telling me that um, from this chapter here in verse 14, there's two places close in this proximity where Jesus wept. Um, he wept overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It's one of the places the Bible records that Jesus wept. And the other place that Jesus, the other time that Jesus wept was near Bethany, which is very close to here, um, when Lazarus died. And, he, and, and Herzl says that it's going to mark the two places where Jesus' feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives when it's going to split. The two places where he wept, marking the, the feet of Jesus. And again, the Bible doesn't necessarily teach that. That's just kind of fun stuff. So, no. There's a, there's a fault line there. Yeah, okay. So, you guys hear that? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's again. Now we're now we're looking back at. I think this is the. Oh shoot! There's so many churches over there. It's a church. I forget which. It's on a blank right now. I remember which church that is. It's, it's not one we visit. We do visit some of them. That's not one of the ones. It's Church of the Ascension. That's what that is. Um, because Jesus ascended. And speaking of that, let's let's go ahead and go to Acts chapter two. Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives. Now. Um, one of the things that I've preached very often, and, and it could have just been my own hang-up. Maybe you guys don't have it. But if you did have it, hopefully by now I have absolutely preached it right out of you. That I, I, I had this idea that everybody in church thought that it, it was radical, it was kind of really fringe to believe or to think that Jesus was coming back. And coming back soon. And so again, through the years of being here, it's one of the areas that I've really tried to encourage our church in, in that it's not fringe, it's not weird, it's not, you know, Jesus freak stuff and, and, and fringe stuff and we're, we're those wacko Christians who believe that Jesus is coming back. That that is Bible. It's one of the most repeated themes in the entire New Testament. To know and believe that Jesus is coming. Now, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about the timing or even the how or the why, but the very fact 
that Jesus is, in fact, coming back, that's what your Bible is about. The Bible can almost be summed up very simply. The Old Testament, that Jesus was going to come, that a Messiah was going to come. The Gospels, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Messiah came, born and died. The New Testament is that that same Messiah is going to come back. So again, it's no different if you were living um, in the Old Testament. You would have lived your whole life understanding that, that, that God promised that a Messiah was going to come. They, they said that we, we read the verse in Daniel where it says that the Antichrist will not have the desire of women. And we unpack that. That can mean a couple different things. But one of the things that we, we understand that that's a Jewish idiom, that the desire of women was for women who understood that God was going to bring a Messiah and they wanted to be the one that God chose to bring the Messiah. That's the desire of women. Of a Jewish girl hoping, believing that God would choose her to, to bring the Messiah. Because they knew and they believed that Messiah would be from the son of David and he would be a man like them. And, and so they knew she would, he would be born of a woman. The Bible prophesied that. And so that's the desire of women. So even with that idea, there would have been a buzz, you know, knowing that, that these, these prophecies of the Old Testament were going to come one day. Now, now we're here on this side of the cross, and we live with that same anticipation, just in a different vein, that Jesus is coming back. You know, and again, I don't want you to feel like if you tell your friends, or if you, if you believe that, or if you say that, that, that the world gets to, to rightfully accuse us of, of being Jesus freaks and those weird Christians. No, we're Christians that can just simply read English. Because all you have to do is be able to read, and you're not, not even English. And the Bible's written in lots of languages. You can read the Bible, and you read the New Testament as a child. It's pretty clear throughout the New Testament, hundreds of times, that Jesus is coming back. Okay? I'm going to take you to a couple of them. This is only going to scratch the surface. A couple of the main highlights. But we're going to look at the first one here in Acts chapter 2, um, beginning in verse number 9. I'm sorry, Acts 1. I'm sorry, I said, I said 2. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. This is where it starts. Right? Because the Old Testament, the, the, the Gospels just finished, right? If you look back to your left, that's John. Now we're out of the Gospels. We're into the New Testament here in the first book. And the very first chapter, it says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Talking about Jesus. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the first promise here in the very first page of the very first chapter of the New Testament, post-Gospels, after the death of Jesus, and, and immediately this same Jesus, so they were there. The disciples watched what we call the Ascension. And so this again, this church is there, they mark it there, and they claim that this is the very spot that the disciples would have saw Jesus ascend into heaven from. But there's no way to know where on the Mount of Olives. We know he was on the Mount of Olives. Why do we know that? Because it tells us right here. 
on the Mount of Olives. Now when he had spoken these things, they watched. He was taken up on a cloud to receive out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly up towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I, I, I want to just kind of a side note. The ascension of Jesus here recorded in Acts chapter 1 it marks um, biblically the beginning of the last days. I know that kind of throws some of us to a loop, right? But technically, again, theologically, doctrinally, the Bible says that this marks the beginning of the last days. From the ascension of Jesus, the last days have begun. So now we're 2,000 years later, and we're still living in the last days. Now, the, the Bible also, all the way through, the New Testament history, the apostles included, have always, God has always designed it so that every generation would live with the anticipation and the expectancy that Jesus could come back in their life. And so that's not wrong. You know, Pastor Chuck was um, not a date setter. Like, he was the one that taught us. No man knows the day or the hour. But in his personal life, in his own personal heart, Pastor, one of Pastor Chuck's kids, I think it was after he died even, she said, you know, the things that Chuck told the church about the coming of, of Jesus and how, how he believed it was so eminent, she said that was nothing compared to what he'd tell us around the dinner table. Like he was saying, Jesus, I, I know Jesus is coming this year and things like that. And he was very in his heart believing. I had someone telling me this recently and they were, they were, you know, basically trying to tell me, well, Chuck got it wrong. You know, Chuck believed that Jesus would come back in his life and even believed he'd only come back this soon and he got it wrong like it was a negative thing. But I want to tell you, if that's how Chuck lived his life, that wasn't wrong or a negative thing. He was doing exactly what the Bible says to do, what all the people from this day all the way to today should do. And in John, it tells us, First John says, that if you live this way, it purifies how you live. And so to live really believing with the expectancy that Christ could come back at any moment it, and if you really believe it, it'll change how you live. You know, a simple example, right? You guys, you know what it was like when um, you were home and you were doing something you weren't supposed to do, but you knew what time Dad got home or Mom got home if nobody was home. And if you knew that Dad got home at 5.30 and it was 5.20 and you were messing around, it was time to stop. Because you don't want to be caught doing that when Dad got home. You look at your clock and it's noon and you're like, Dad, don't get up till 5.30. We're good, you know? And so believing and knowing that, that Christ could come back at any moment is the way that God wants us to live. I'll just read it to you. Um, you don't have to turn there. We're going to go to one other place. Maybe you want to turn in a minute. But First um, John 3, 3 says, First uh, John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So that's the instant changing that all shall be changed in the instant, the twinkling of an eye. And here it says that we will know Him as we're known because we shall see Him and we shall be like Him. So when you receive that glorified body, when you go up in the rapture, immediately your, your, your body is changed. You're given a glorified body. Your mind is quickened. Immediately you're not going to have all these questions about um, things that you need answered to because immediately it says you're gonna, God's going to quicken your heart and your mind as He, as he transforms you because it says you're going to know Him as you're known. And that's pretty intimately. He knows how many hairs are on top of your head. And every time you brush your hair, that number changes. So, um, 
you know, for, I, I had this. Grace's shower was clogged, and I had to clean out her shower drain the other day. And I'm like, how do you have any hair left on your head? I don't understand how you have one hair left on your head, but you do. Somehow, they come out in the drain, and we still have hair on our head. But the Lord knows. And so in verse 3 it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. First John 3, 3. So there's this idea, biblically, that, that we purify ourselves when we live with this expectancy and we don't get caught with our hand in the cookie jar. Um, in Titus, in, in chapter 2, in verse 13, it says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I call this the eminent verse. Because this verse gives us the idea that the return of Jesus is eminent. If something has to happen prophetically or, or Jesus is coming back in a mid or a post-tribulation rapture, then there's no reason that we should have an eminent return of Christ because Christ can't come back for at least three and a half years or seven years from where we are today if He's coming back in the middle or the end of the tribulation. So He's coming back but here it says that, that, that we should have this blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's called the blessed hope. And always, always remind us, right, that in Thessalonians, when it talks about the rapture and the second coming of Christ, that it says we should comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. The idea that Jesus is coming. That's why I can teach through Revelation 6-19 through 19 about all this ominous and terrible things happening in a quarter of the population in the first part dying and half the population of the world dying and sea turning to blood and hailstones of a hundred pounds and demons and locusts stinging people so that they want to die and asking the earth to fall on them and they can't die and still be encouraging because we're going to escape all those things. Jesus said pray that you would escape all these things that have come upon the world. You know, one of the criticisms of the pre-tribulation rapture is that we are escapists and we just we don't have the backbone to, to endure the things that, that are going to come, so we just want to escape. Uh, guilty. You can call me a escape if you want your own bag, homie. Because I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. Jesus said, pray that you would escape all these things. Okay? Jesus said to do it. It's good enough for me. I'm going to pray to escape these things, and I am going to escape these things, because I'm not going to be there for you. All right. So Jesus is coming. Be ready. And then let's look at the last gate. The last gate is... Um, any questions on the return of Christ? I've got a few minutes to finish up this last one. I think I said, I, like I said, I feel like that's an area that you guys are pretty well versed in and knowing the difference between the first and second coming. And, and by the way, I had a little note here. I didn't cover it, but just for whatever it's worth. Um, the rapture of the church does not mark the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Okay? I always had that in my mind, in my eschatological mind as a young believer, was that when the rapture happened, that would set off the seven-year time frame because the seven years is specific. It's, it's very, very specific. It's to the day, 1,260 days, three and a half years, seven years. It has to unfold from the day it begins, whatever marks the day, exactly three and a half years on a 360-day calendar is when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt Jewish temple and declares himself to be God and causes the abomination of causes desolation. Exactly three and a half years later, the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. It's all time. But that time clock 
doesn't begin with the rapture of the church. It's very possible that the rapture of the church could happen, and there, there, there will be a gap between the rapture and that time frame beginning. How long that gap is, I don't know. I don't see it being like years. I see it being maybe months, weeks. Um, could be up to a year. Could be years. I don't know. I don't quite see it maybe lasting that long. But just know prophetically what, what marks, this is the question now, what marks the beginning of the seven years? There's an event, Daniel 9, 25, 27, tells us the what? The signing of the covenant from the Antichrist with Israel that, that Daniel tells us that marks the time clock for the beginning of the rapture. So when the Antichrist signs his name on that, on that covenant, the clock begins. Okay? And, that, and, that, and again, from that day to, to the, back to the whenever the rapture happened, it could, it could be, there could be a gap there. All right? Okay, so that's the um, East Gate, the return of Jesus, represents the return of Jesus. The last one is the inspection gate. Now, again, I only have two minutes left, but you're okay because um, we're, we, could, we could do this one in two minutes because I just did it. I've just done, I've just done it. Is that right? I've just completed it on Sunday um, with Revelation because we studied Revelation 20 with the Great White Throne Judgment and I've told you of the two. So the inspection gate, um, this is the gate, the actual gate in the time of King David and, 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 and where the kings would inspect the soldiers. So the horse gate is near there where they would mount up. They would, they would get their war horses. And then they would present themselves at the inspection gate, and that's where the king would come, and he would look over the soldiers and inspect them before they went out to battle. So you and I are going to be inspected by our King Jesus one day. Now, there's two judgments that the Bible talks about. The great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. That judgment is not for believers. We won't be there for that judgment. Everyone who attends the great white throne judgment their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They'll be cast into the um, eternal lake of fire. Okay? But you and I, as believers, our life will be inspected. It tells us, and your, your proof text for this um, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn there with me if you will. So you have this stuff in your bag. I'm not just talking trash. You guys can actually turn to it and, and know that it's there and read it for yourself, study it for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with, everybody, gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. Now, um, this is not a judgment of salvation. This is what we call the Bema Seat of Christ, or the Bema Seat Judgment. So again, your two judgments in the New Testament, the Great White Throne Judgment and the Bema Seat Judgment. We will attend the Bema Seat if you're a believer in Christ. You will not attend the Great White. So at the Bema Seat, your works, um, James said, faith without works is dead. And so we are to do good works. And those works will be judged by Christ at the beam of seat. And here, the Apostle Paul even gives us, he fleshes it out for us and gives us a little idea of, of how it's going to go down. So it's going to be tested by fire. What happens when you put wood, hay, and stubble into a fire? They burn. 
what happens when you put gold, diamond, and, and, and jewels into a fire? They survive, or they become even more pure, right? And so this is the idea of the Bema Seat Christ. I've uh, explained it to you guys as a, as a conveyor belt with a fire in the middle. You put all your works on one side, and everything goes through the fire, and what comes out the other side is your reward. So those rewards are based on your, the intent of your heart, right? So you, you can do a million things for Christ. There was a group who were going to stand before Jesus one day, and they're going to say, we prophesied in your name. We did good works in your name. We fed the poor in your name. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So all their good works were for nothing because they weren't done in Christ or, 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 or with um, you know, knowing Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Now also, your, your rewards or what you do and, and what you're working towards in your reward, what God is going to honor is the motive behind it. And you could do something. Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I, I want to be careful, right, with the, the idea that, yes, you, you are, but there are certain things that we do that people have to see, right? There are certain things you're going to do in your Christian living, and, and some people are going to see them, and that's okay. It, and, unless you're doing it specifically so that people will see it and, and give you an attaboy. And if your intention of your heart is to be recognized by men, Jesus said this. He said, when they look at you and they say, hey, good job, Jesus said, hey, enjoy that. Because that's all the reward you're going to get. Because when that particular deed that men recognize, and you did it so you could be recognized by men, when you get to heaven, that deed will go through the fire. But it will go through as what? Wood, hay, and stubble, right? And it'll get burned up, and it'll come out. But you did something for the Lord. Now you teach a Sunday school class, right? People are going to see that. They know you're there. Your name's on the list. Staff, no. But, but it's a genuine reward. It's, even though it's in the public eye, I'm preaching. I'm doing certain things. But again, if I'm here because I, I'm here, I, I'm not rewarded because I'm here or I'm not here. I'm rewarded um, if my motives are correct. I'm doing it in obedience for Christ and I'm not doing it to get, you know, that's why sometimes it's hard to receive compliments. You know, so like, you know, or even sometimes when I when I say certain things to people, like I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to steal your reward, you know. And we don't have the ability really to steal anybody's reward. That comes from the condition of their heart. But you know, I learned a long time ago. When someone compliments me, a new approach, I just say thank you. Because it gets old, right? Oh, brother, it's the Lord. It's not me. Shut up, right? You know, that, that's, that's worse, right? And, and maybe some people are intending it, you know, and they mean that. Like, they want to give God the glory, I get it. Like, we all want to keep pointing people to Jesus. But, you know, that, that false humility sometimes is worse than, than just... So I just say thank you. You know, I appreciate it. You know, and uh, try, try not to get a big head about it. You know, and, and don't worry. God has built in for me a, a big head deflator. She's sitting on the front row. <laughs> So when you guys on Sunday, I stand out in the lobby, and you guys come by, and you're like, wow, good sermon, Pastor Chris. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. I know. I know. The Holy Spirit was just all over me. I was just preaching. And then I get home. I get the real story of how the sermon was. <laughs> so, got the, the natural dissuader. Amen? So, hey, you can write this stuff down. If you're writing it down, we're, we're a couple minutes over, so I'm not going to read it. But the Bible talks about reward, the demon seat, other things, multiple times. First um, Corinthians thirteen twelve to fifteen, Second Corinthians five ten, Romans fourteen ten, Matthew five twelve says to to store up for yourself treasures in heaven, 
And listen also, I, I, I don't want us to not be motivated in Christian living by what you're going to receive in heaven. Okay? I think that's, again, false humility. I think that's, that's just... And I, and I see people, I think, make that mistake. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's where I'm at. That I think it's totally okay because, again, it comes back to a condition of your heart. But because the Bible so many times talks about the concept of reward, do you know Jesus... Um, just in the Sermon on the Mount alone, just Matthew 5, 6, and 7, nine times, either directly or indirectly, Jesus mentions the motivation of a reward you'll receive in heaven. Nine times Jesus mentioned it. I could give you 20 scriptures in the New Testament. Do it yourself. Go to your concordance, type in the word reward, New Testament, and read the scriptures where the Bible talks about specifically a reward that God has for you. So if the Bible has so much to say about me receiving a reward, if Jesus said, store it for yourself, treasures in heaven, why is it wrong for me to live my life in such a way that I want to earn rewards in heaven? I've got to keep my motives pure. I've got to make sure I'm not turning stuff into wood, hay, and stubble. But man, I want us to be motivated. I, I want you to live your life. I want you to believe that God has a, a varying levels of reward for you. I, and I'll, I'll end with this. I'm way over, but you guys got to hear this. A pastor, his name was Pastor Jackie, actually. He shared this one time, and it made such an impression on my life as a, as a young Christ follower. And he was telling, and I don't even know, again, if it's, if it's theologically accurate, and I've shared it before, but it's the idea, he was talking about this idea, the being the seat of Christ, and he said, like, when, we, when, you, when you're on judgment day, when you're going to be inspected at the inspection gate, he said, imagine there's a line of people, and Jesus is at the front, and each person is presenting they're, they're themselves to Jesus, and Jesus is passing out the rewards and greeting them. And, and so you're in line, and you see what everybody brought from the earth, all the things they did, all the Sunday school classes they taught, the giving, whatever they did for the Lord. And they have this, this stuff for God, and they're going to present it to Jesus. Now, of what value it's for, it really doesn't matter. But, but, but everybody's there, and Jesus is receiving them, and we're all presenting to him the things that we did for him here on this earth. Because the only things that we do for Christ will last. And, and, and then there's that one guy who just has nothing to offer. And he's just empty-handed. And, and, and he said, I don't want to be that guy that's going to have nothing to offer Jesus on that day. And it so motivated me. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy. And so I don't, I don't even know or care like how much or how great. I just don't want to be nothing. I don't want to be that guy that has nothing to offer Christ on Judgment Day. But I want to be able to say to him, Lord, I, I, I tried in sincerity, Lord, I did this for you. Lord, I served you. I gave my life for this moment. And, and then try to picture yourself in that moment and live every second of your life for that moment that's a reality in your future. The day you're going to stand before Jesus and what is going to be in your hands that you're going to offer Him as, as something that you did to build His kingdom while you're here on earth. Amen? Jesus, we thank You and we praise You. And Father, we know Your Word talks about reward and that Lord, we want to we want to have a reward when we get to heaven. We talked about crowns, talks about over and over again for us to store up treasures in heaven and to send up things before us and to do good works. And Jesus, it also says that if we do them with the wrong motive, that there's no reward. And so, Father, help us, Lord, help us to live our lives pure, expecting the return of Jesus, and desire, Father, to on inspection day to have something to offer you now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you on Sunday.